Good morning, church. Welcome to the house of God. I want to invite you to begin with prayer. Let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, we come and we pray and we ask that you would, Lord, by your spirit, open up our hearts and our minds and enlarge our capacity to hear, to understand, to perceive, and to be able to apply this word that you have for us this morning. Be with us, Lord, and enable me to speak clearly and for your truth to go forth and to do its appointed fruit and so that we would be fruitful for you. We praise you. We ask these things for your glory alone. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by reading an excerpt from an article we recently read in one of my classes entitled, Hiding from God, Pastoral and Apologetic Implications in Light of the Fall. So listen as I read. There is certainly a place for public defense of the Christian faith. We should always be ready to engage unbelief with solid biblical arguments and willing to dare down the strongholds of deception with the weapons of truth. For this reason, it is useful for Christians to gain some handle on the most common objections to biblical Christianity and equip themselves with substantive answers. The ability to expose self-refuting arguments and point out inconsistencies in the unbeliever's worldview is an important tool in the apologist's toolbox, and some knowledge of issue related to science and history can prove helpful. But all of this effort at defending the faith does little good for the unbeliever unless it is wrapped up at all times in the gospel. Ever since Adam and Eve's first sin in the garden, man has been hiding from God, and for good reason. Because he now stands before his creator with the guilt of original and personal sin, man faces the prospect of eternal punishment for his rebellion, and deep down, he knows it. The first and most natural response of the human heart when faced with potential destruction is to find refuge from it. Adam sought refuge among the trees, and now man seeks refuge in sophisticated arguments against the truth of the Bible. Our work as apologists is to tear down the unbeliever's refuge so that he no longer rests his conscience upon such flimsy protection. But is that all we should be doing? If man is hiding from God, he is doing so because he doesn't want to be destroyed. This response to judgment is entirely legitimate. But when we are successful at dismantling an argument or exposing an obvious logical problem in an unbeliever's worldview, we've done nothing but help move the unbeliever from one refuge of unbelief to the other. The truth that man naturally hides his sin is very instructive for us this morning. Some of us can recall a time when we were running from God before he took a hold of our lives and transformed us. As believers, however, this tendency remains to some extent. The tendency to cover sin, to rationalize sin, to keep silent about sin. I've entitled this 
morning study of Psalm 32, and you can start making your way there, running for cover. I love this psalm because in it, God, through the mouth of David, instructs us about sin covering. Specifically, the right way to cover up sin and the wrong way to do it. It talks about how we try to hide our sins from God and how God offers to hide our sin from us. The psalm represents or presents you rather with this intriguing choice. Will you attempt to cover up your own sins or will you let God cover up sins for you? Before we read the psalm, just want to go over the, the structure here that David has outlined for us. In Psalm 32, this is one of Psalms or one of David's repentance psalms. Um, it, it probably builds on where, where David leaves off in Psalm 51, which we heard read earlier this morning. The background to both of these psalms is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, David's sin with Bathsheba and the subsequent rebuke by the prophet Nathan. And if you look at the beginning of the psalm, verse 1, or in our English Bibles, it would be the heading of the psalm. It says it's a psalm of David, a mass kill. It's a mass kill. And, and what that means is what David is writing here, what God through David is writing is set of instructions. It's a teaching tool. It's not just a letter of information, a, a, a song that we are to sing. But as we sing, in this song is in, enclosed a set of instructions for us. And David begins this psalm by talking about first the delight we experience when God covers our sin. That's what we're going to look at first. And then he transitions to highlight the despair in man's attempt to cover his own sin. And finally, three, he gives a direction on how to enter God's cover and experience his blessedness. So before we study, I want to invite you to open, if you haven't yet, to Psalm 32, and let us read this psalm in its entirety. A psalm of David, a masculine. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my, my body wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you. In my iniquity, I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity or the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in time when you may be found. Surely in the flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you. And teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as a mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include the bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many 
are the sorrows of the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness, shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. And shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Now, last Sunday, we studied the very first psalm, Psalm 1. And we asked the question, are you blessed? Are you blessed? This morning, I want us to consider another aspect of a blessed man, particularly the man who experiences the blessing of God's forgiveness. And so let us begin in verse 1, first of all, by covering the delight in experiencing God's cover. The delight in experiencing God's cover. What is blessedness? What does it mean to be blessed? David cries out twice here in verse 1 and 2, how blessed is he? And then he goes on and he says, how blessed is the man? Last Sunday in studying verse 1, or, or rather Psalm 1, Max highlighted the fact that a happy person or a blessed person is he who is deeply satisfied with God. And this morning we have a man before us whose happiness is rooted in being satisfied with God's pardon and grace. In verses 1 and 2, if you just merely scan these verses, they're loaded with meaning. They're loaded with terms that are loaded with meaning. And as we look at the specifics, I want us to answer this question. How do we come to be deeply satisfied with God's pardon and grace? Because as you read verses 1 and 2, you, you feel David and you understand where he cries out, how blessed, how happy, how satisfied, how joyful is this man who has experienced pardon and grace. And so our question then is, how do I come to be deeply satisfied and come to experience this blessedness? And I want to submit to you two things from verses 1 and 2. First is this. The measure of our perception of sin impacts the measure of our delight in God. The measure of our perception of sin, what we think of sin, will affect the level of our delight, which will then result in praise and adoration. David uses four different terms here for sin, which helps us better understand the comprehensive nature of what we're dealing with, of what he was dealing with. First term here in verse 1 is transgression. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression. Transgression is resistance to God. It is rebellion. It is refusal to submit to the rightful authority. Literally means to, to revolt against God's known law. You have a boundary, and you know this boundary to be here, and you willingly step over this boundary. In David's case... It was pretty simple if you just consider the Ten Commandments and, and consider the story that we read about David in, in 2 Samuel. The law says, you shall not murder, transgressed. You shall not commit adultery, transgressed. You shall not steal, transgressed. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, transgressed. 
And so as David here comes under this perception of his sin, he cries out and he says, how blessed, why? Because he understands that his sin is not simply a sin, but the first characteristics of sin here is our propensity to rebel. Second, whose sin is covered. This is an archery term. It is the most general term that's used in the Bible for sin, and it literally means just to miss the mark, to miss what God calls us to aim at in our relationship with him and our relationships with each other. It's an omission on the part of a sinner, a failure to live up to a certain standard. In David's case, he was required to care for his neighbor. You shall love your neighbor, the law says. Instead, he goes on and defrauds her, his neighbor. So not only transgression, not only sin, but consider verse 2. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Iniquity. This word iniquity comes from a word meaning to be bent or to be twisted. You're just not straight. There's something crooked about you. The, the perversion of something that is right, something that should be straight, but it is not. And so David here is saying that his heart is bent, his heart is twisted. Essentially, he is saying that what happened to him, what happened to me was not an accident. It was not a fluke. It was not a fumble. This is very explainable. And here's the explanation. He says, my heart is very twisted and full of iniquity. We just read Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. And this is not a way to make an excuse that I just am what I am. And, 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 and that's just who God created me to be, and it's the result of the fall, but it is a realization of who you are and you bear consequences. This is the nature, and your nature as a sinner is warped. The inner character of the sinner is inherently wrong, whether it, is, whether it violates God's law or it doesn't. And what it points to is it points to the corruption of our nature, which we call the original sin. It is the state of our being. So there's transgression, there's sin, there's iniquity. And look at the end of verse 2, there's deceit. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. And deceit is insincerity and deliberate cover-up. You know you're a sinner. You know you've transgressed. You know you're full of iniquity. But what you try to do as a sinner is you try to cover it up. It's an attitude that pretends that nothing is wrong. It speaks of David, what he did when, when he would not face the facts honestly. He began to practice deceit in an attempt to cover up his sin. And so what we have for us here in verses 1 and 2 is a complete comprehensive picture of our sin. Augustine said that the beginning of knowledge is to know thyself to be a sinner. And I think there's a lot of truth in that statement. Before you begin to understand anything else, you and I, we need to understand the gravity and the depravity of our sin. And that is why the forgiveness that David here experiences was so sweet 
and was so delightful to him because he understood himself to be a sinner, a rebel with a twisted heart who failed to live up to God's standard and try to cover it all up. The measure of our perception of sin impacts the measure of our delight in God. If we discount the problem of our sin, brothers and sisters, we'll find the solution to be very cheap. We will be looking for a cheap solution. But David's delight is in the fact of, that he knew who he was. And the second point here that I want us to see is the measure of our perception of grace. Not just the measure of our perception of sin, but the measure of our perception of grace. God's grace impacts the measure of our delight in him. David also brings in three words here that I want us to focus that truly overwhelm every facet of our sinfulness. Look at the text. He says that God first forgives our sin, verse 1. He forgives our sin. Then he covers our sin. And then look at in verse 2, he says he refuses to count our sin against us. God forgives. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. This word forgiven literally means to just carry off, to take off, to lift up a burden, to put it on someone else and to send it away, never to see it and never to feel it again. It speaks of God in his mercy lifting the load of our guilt off of us. If you recall in Leviticus chapter 16, the very image of a scapegoat. And I think this picture is very uh, healthy. And this reality is, is seen here in this phrase of God forgiven our transgression. Where the sins of the people are ceremonially placed on this goat and the animal is sent into the wilderness never to return again. This Old Testament practice ultimately points ahead to Jesus, who would be the perfect and final scapegoat. And I am so happy that we had the opportunity to already participate in the communion this morning and to remind ourselves of why we are forgiven. In Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 29, it says this, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who takes away, who lifts up, who banishes it and forgives. And today, because of the finished work of Jesus, God forgives, God takes away our rebellion. Not only does God forgive, notice he says that my sin is covered. God covers, God hides our sin out of his sight, which means that he doesn't bring it up he doesn't bring up our sin as a matter of judgment, as a matter of his displeasure with us. Why? Because of this. Because of what Jesus has accomplished for us already. David knew that. Back in Leviticus 16, there was also a goat of sin offering, which was to atone for the sins of the people. But on the right side of the cross, we read in the New Testament, for instance, 1 Peter chapter 2.24, Peter writes, and he himself bore our sins on the cross, 1 John 2, 2, and he is the propitiation 
for our sins. God is no longer angry. God is now satisfied. And because he is satisfied and he's no longer angry, God can cover our sin in Christ because he paid the penalty. When David decided to cease hiding, cease from covering up his sin and instead to confess them, God said that what God did with my sin is he himself took care of it. He hid my sin. He covered my sin. And thirdly, look at verse 2. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. It's an accounting term. It means that the debt that you own is not charged to your account. The same verb here is used in Genesis 15, 6, the very famous verse that we all know. Then Abraham, or he, believed in God, and God reckoned, this word reckoned, credited, imputed it to him as righteousness. Abraham never deserved it. He simply exercised faith. And because of faith, something was credited to him that shouldn't have been credited, but it was credited because he didn't work for it. He believed it. And what David here is highlighting is he's highlighting the the other side of this credit system. God did not credit my sin to me. He did not impute my sin to my account Colossians chapter 2, I will remind you what Paul wrote to that church in verse 13 and 14. He says, having forgiven us all our transgression. How did he do that? Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Man, we sing this song, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, right? My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. So in these first two verses, by listing the various types of sin, David reminds us how comprehensive is our need for God's graces. But he doesn't stop there. He also gives us a picture of God's comprehensive forgiveness. And the degree at which we perceive the gravity of our sin and the gravity of God's grace impacts the measure to which we will delight in God. Now, going forward, what happens when you run from God's cover in an attempt to cover your own sin? We can be sitting here this morning excited and praising the Lord, and we must, and we should. As you heard Max say, this is a celebration, a celebration of the fact that God covered our sin. But what happens if you try to cover up your own sin? If you take a detour and you say, no, no, I I got it. Well, David tells us, and let's allow David to instruct us here from verses 3 and 4, And second, what I want us to focus on is this, the despair in man's attempt to cover. The despair in man's attempt to cover. As we said before, the nature of sin is to cover it up. Think back to Adam and Eve. As soon as they disobeyed, they hid from God. They probably hid from one another, and they attempted to cover up themselves with leaves. And every time we read, we think, man, what a pathetic duo, right? Leaves, like, couldn't you find something better 
uh, yes, pathetic, but brothers and sisters, this is the natural tendency, and we are all too guilty of the same, sadly, even as believers. Sin, run from God. And in verses 3 and 4, David is describing his story. He's describing his story of hiding, months of hiding, scheming, and deceiving. And look what he says in verse 3, when I kept silent. When I kept silent, when I kept it a deep secret, when I didn't want anyone to find out. Consider David to the outside observer. It seems as though David was, was actually helping Bathsheba out by taking her in, by making her to be his wife, by providing for her. Right after all, her husband accidentally died in the battlefield. And it was only right for him as the king to go in, to bring her in, and to serve her, and to give her everything that she was now missing. But little did they know that David kept silent. Keeping silent means resisting confession. It means to look for other means to reveal or to relieve, rather, your guilt. And this is the way that sin works in our lives. It always invites us to hide. But let me ask you this. Is that attempt to hide ever successful? You know, we have four kids, and right now when we have extended amount of time together at home, we like to every once in a while play hide-and-seek. And, seek. and uh, the way a two-year-old plays hide and seek versus a seven-year-old, it's radically different. And, and I'm sure you guys who have a two-year-old or observe the two-year-old play hide-and-seek, you can probably relate to that. Every once in a while, the girls go out, they hide, and me and Evan count to 30, and we say, okay, here we go, we're going to go find you, and so ready or not, we're coming after you. And we go in, and sometimes it takes us a while to find them. We have a small house, fairly small house, but still they find places to hide. But every once in a while, Evan's like, I am going to go and hide. And so I sit there, and I count to 30, and ready or not, here I go, and I close my eyes, and, and I count, and once I'm done, I look up, and I see Evan right next to me with his eyes closed, and I ask him, Evan, where are you? And he says, I'm here, right away. And, and you can kind of see that, that he, he somewhat opens up, you know, his fingers and, and sees if, if I can see him or not. To, to him, his concept of hiding, uh, he's done. He can't see me. That means I can't see him. Sometimes he goes and he hides behind a couch and he kind of sits there and, and you, you could totally see his, his legs sticking out from across the room. And his attempt at hiding is, is uh, very primitive, but... I get what he's trying to do. He's hiding. Every once in a while, when I say, here I am, I'm coming, ready or not, and he jumps out and says, hey, without even giving me an opportunity to find him. You know, I, I, I think of, of, of these games that we play, and, and I think our attempts sometimes at, at hiding our sin is the very same attempt that Evan has in hiding from me. Not so elaborate, because no matter how far we go, God sees everything. 
And this is the way that, that, that sin works. It makes you think that you got it taken care of, but you don't. And look what David says here in verses 3 and 4. Resistance to confess sin, to come clean, to just open up and say, Lord, here I am. You already see everything. Take it from me. The resistance to confess results in one thing. First of all, for David, it resulted in physical pain. He says, my body wasted away. Considering David's age, he was probably mid-40s at this time. And I know mid-40s is not mid-20s. But mid-40s, if you look at all the accounts of First and Second Samuel, you see David as a warrior, strong warrior, running to this point around, killing and slaying and being victorious, one victory after another. He was not this dude who was limping around. He was a strong man. But look what he says here, that unconfessed sin caused me to be sick, groaning all day long. This roaring, the, the, this loud cries that, that are battling on the inside. Neil read for us in Psalm 51 where David expressed this by saying that he felt as if his bones were shattered. His bones were breaking. Guilt has this adverse effect even on our bodies. Not only do we experience physical pain when we resist or when we resist confession but man god gets involved god gets involved we experience god's discipline look what he says for day and night your hand was heavy upon me david was spiraling down spiritually god got directly involved in rescuing his wayward servant and we see that instead of feeling fresh and full of life, he was dried up like a plant from a drought. He is spiritually dehydrated. You know, there are three psalms here in the Psalter where David explicitly talks about his sin. We mentioned Psalm 51 is the confession psalm. Psalm 32, the one before us here, is the teaching psalm about his confession. And Psalm 38, Psalm 38 is a remembrance psalm Flip forward with me to Psalm 38. Let me just read a few verses of what... This is later on in, in David's life where he writes about his sin. And look what he says beginning in verse uh, 2. He says, for your arrows... He's, this is his private conversation with God. And look what he says. For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities have gone over my head and as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. I go mourning all day long long. I mean, David was spent. His vitality was sapped. The burden of guilt and shame, he says, was just too much for me to carry. His sin led him to summer drought, he says. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Remember what Max taught us last Sunday? 
the blessedness of a godly man and some of the characteristics that we read about this godly man here. He says that he is like a tree. And as a tree, he is stable, he is satisfied, he is fruitful, he is lively, he's planted by the streams of water, and he gets his juices and vitamins anytime, all the time. But look at the character and the comparison of a man who's running away from God and is trying to cover up his sin. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, which we didn't read before. David says, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Brothers and sisters, David understood that no amount of expressive sacrifices or or service could take away his sin. No amount of good works or even good intentions can solve his sin problem. No matter what we try to do to cover our sins with, it's a futile exercise that only brings despair and discipline of God. And I want you to notice something here in verse 30, or in going back to chapter 32. Look with me at verse 4, at the end of verse 4. This little phrase, Selah. Selah. And there are difference of opinion on what this means, why it's there. But Selah usually marks a break in the action for the purpose of meditation. A break in the action for the purpose of meditation. And so ultimately what David is saying after highlighting the blessedness of of God's forgiveness and the despair of trying to cover up your own sin, he says this, Selah, ponder this. Consider the effects of unconfessed sin, brothers and sisters. Consider the despair that we experience when we try to do this on our own, when we keep silent. So first, the delight in experiencing God's cover. Second, the despair in men's attempt to cover. Finally, How do we come to experience this delight and blessedness that David's talking about here? In having God cover our sins. Let's consider the direction to enter God's cover. The direction to enter God's cover. And here in verse 5, we have David's testimony. And in verse 6 and down, we have David's exhortation and teaching. The very first thing that David says, in me coming under the experience of God's blessedness of forgiveness is I admitted my sin. Look at verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. This word acknowledge means to make known. David resolved to hide his sin no longer. He opened up about his sin. David confessed his failure to live to God's standard. Lord, I totally blew it. And he called his sin, sin. I acknowledge not my mistake, not my error, not my tendency to act like a human being, but I acknowledged my sin to you. Did not make, explain it away. Did not make any excuses. Number two, and my iniquity I did not hide. I uncovered my iniquity. I did not hide. I confessed my sinful bent to the Lord. The Lord knew it all, but it had to come from me. 
Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. He will be like a tree in the wilderness withered. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And what verse 5 says, what David says here, what God through David instructs us is David stopped his cover-up attempts. I said, I will confess my transgression. David confessed his transgression. Confessed means to come in agreement with. Essentially, I, I agreed with God that I stepped over the boundary and revolted against the Holy One. So just like in verses 1 and 2, these, the, this list of sins, David was not making any excuses. He said, I went to the Lord as Nathan came and confronted me, I confessed everything to the Lord, and I named my sin. And get this. Highlight this. Underline at the end of verse 5. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. I confessed. I uncovered. I said, I will never hide it again. And look what God does. He Forgives. After I stopped the cover-up and acknowledged my sin to the Lord, when I owned everything before God and fell on his mercy, he says, you lift it up again. You forgave the guilt of my sin. The iniquity of my sin, literally this last phrase, the, the guilt of my sin, the sins of my sin, it emphasizes the degree of the offense. This wasn't a mistake. This was a bold revolt against God. And look again, Selah. Selah. Again, calls us to think and ponder. Man, what do you think of that? I mean, consider the depth of your sin and, and, and your attempts, the failure of your attempts to cover them all, but also consider God's forgiveness. And then in verses 6 and 7, which we will not look in, in detail, but I just want to give you a few things that David now instructs us to do with our sin. Here's his teaching. He says this psalm is meant to teach us. This psalm is meant to exhort us. And the very first exhortation, verse 6, Therefore, let every, anyone who is godly pray. Let everyone who is godly pray. That's the first thing. Cry out to God when? Right now. Because look what he says. To you in the time when you may be found. In the time when you may be found is not a threat but an urgent call. Stop covering up. Rather go and cry out to God. Pray. And who is he calling to pray? He says the godly ones. Godly ones. Those who experience God's loving kindness. The root for godly here is the same thing as the root for love or God's loving kindness. Exactly the same word. And you who are godly, we who are called the righteous, go to God and cry out to him and repent and confess and open up. Number two, he says, seek shelter in the Lord. Seek shelter in the Lord. Surely in the flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. David here exchanged 
hiding his sin for a hiding place in the Lord. The same man who in verse 4 complained that he was oppressed by God's hand, in verse 7, look, declares God to be his cover. Same man, same God, different attitude. Those who cry out to God are promised this protection. The flood of great waters here refers to God's judgment. The man who has experienced God's forgiveness does not need to fear the flood of God's judgment. And what a blessing that instead of having to run from God now, we can run to God and we can be saved in him. Now, why can we on the right side of the cross have this confidence, even be more assured of what this promise is? Well, it's because of this. It's because of Christ. It's because the, of, of the testimony that we have in the New Testament. Consider what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are covered up with Christ in God. And he warns here, he warns here in verse 9, do not be stubborn or self-willed like a horse or a mule so that God has to put bit and bridle in order to lead you. Do not resist. Go to verse 5 and confess. So there's this exhortation to pray. There's this exhortation to seek shelter in Christ because of what he has done. The fury of God's wrath has been extinguished because it's been poured out on Christ. And now Christ is our shelter to whom we run. And, and, and the final exhortation in verse 11, praise. Praise. In the end, David contrasts the, the wicked who have many sorrows with the righteous who are surrounded by God's love. And he says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice. You righteous ones. And shout for joy all who are upright in heart. The righteous are upright in heart, not because they have never sinned. Look, the righteous are upright in heart, not because they never failed. But because they have confessed their sin and have come to experience the greatest display of God's mercy being hidden in Jesus who died for our sins. Free from condemnation. Because Christ paid the penalty. Romans 8, 1, therefore, there, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in, in. This whole idea of a New Testament, this whole concept, right, in the New Testament of unity in Christ, being hidden in him, is exactly what we're talking about. If we are in Christ, hidden in Christ, there is no, no condemnation. Oh, the delight in experiencing God's cover, being hidden in Christ Jesus. This morning, I want to close with this question. Who is covering your sin? Who is covering your sin? Have you come to God and asked God to cover your sin in Jesus, in Christ? If so, praise the Lord. I trust that many of us here this morning have done so. And together with the psalmist, with David here, we can cry out how blessed is he, right, whose transgression is forgiven, that we are no longer liable. 
delight in the God of your salvation, brothers and sisters, but maybe you have been silent about your sin. Maybe you have been playing the silent game like David with God, trying to cover up your own sins. Maybe you've done this for so long that it's taken its physical toll on you. You've been running for cover, but running in the wrong direction. You know, God invites you to pray this morning, to confess your sin, to move from under God's hand of discipline into his hand that surrounds you with his loving kindness and love. Forgiveness of sins is found in Jesus Christ alone. So take cover in God by trusting in his son. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. Oh, what a grace, what a forgiveness. You decided to cover our sins. In another psalm, we read that you have separated our sins from us like the east is from the west. And just meditating on that reality makes you want to cry out how blessed, oh, how fortunate we are because of what Christ has done for us. And so I pray, may we, may we be equipped here with this truth and this, this um, exhortation now to go to the world and not to try to knock down the forts that people have built for themselves in order to hide from you and just leave them there exposed to your wrath, but to point them to Jesus in whom your wrath is satisfied. And ourselves as those who are righteous, those who are upright in heart, be quick to confess because we have nothing to hide. You forgave us all. You covered us. We thank you for the celebration this morning. May we leave from this place just equipped with joy and your truth to go and proclaim it to ourselves and others. Bless us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.